RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Okay, uh, we've been talking a little bit lately about AI. It's coming up quite regularly, artificial intelligence. Everyone's heard of chat GTP and um, videos are being produced on it now. AI has designed the perfect man and woman I saw last week. Deep fakes are starting to become something. But what is AI and should we be worried about it? Jobst Langreeb and Barry Smith have written a book. They're from the University of Buffalo titled Why Machines Will Never Rule the World, Artificial Intelligence Without Fear. And Jobs joins us from the United States to talk about his book and hopefully to reassure us that this is not kind of the end of humanity as we know it. Welcome to our program. Thanks for coming on. Uh, hi, Paul. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Okay, I'm so the book, your book is called On, sorry, Why Machines Will Never Rule the World, Artificial Intelligence Without Fear. Let's just take the title. So they never will rule the world is what you say, because that's the big fear. Correct. Because to rule, you have to have a will. They won't, they will never have a will. So you can't program will into something. Is that really what yes. you're saying? That, that's certain. But that's the hardest part. So we can get back to this at the end. But first, we need to understand more basic stuff. But basically, the end result is you can't have uh, machine rulers because machines can't have a will. That's correct. Yeah. But could they, could they design themselves a will? Could they pick up something you know, akin to a digital will? Is it? possible with enough computational power because as i understand it you know um they're a lot more powerful than the human brain or aren't they yeah so this is a very good question so they can't pick anything up because for this they would need a will as well however what's the reason for this the reason is that computers are machines and the human brain is not a machine so what does this mean um the human uh, human thinking and human consciousness human will arise from the brain uh, sorry, mind-body continuum. So, so we are not only brains, but but of course the brain is integrated with the rest of the body, and our consciousness depends on the mind and the and the body. And this is a complex system. And such complex systems, they are um, they create uh, data that is not regular. It's fundamentally irregular. And machines, they create regular data, and they, they are also built according to regularity. Could you explain the difference? Yes. So, so uh, for example, if I take this bottle of water, that's it's not a machine, but it's a, it's for now a good enough example. It's an ergodic system. That means that when wherever in this bottle I take a bit of water and measure its the contents of its molecule, it will be the same, right? So the same amount of minerals, the same amount of water molecules. Uh, this is with uh, uh, with carbon dioxide to so the same amount of carbon dioxide in solution, and so on. If I shake the bottle. It will for a while not be ergodic anymore. I need to wait for it to calm down and redistribute, and then I can do this measurement again. Now, the human mind is a bit like a permanently shaken bottle of water, but much more complicated so that there's no regularity in it. Whereas machines are always regular. So like think of a steam engine. It is, it is um, you know, conceptual or electric uh, engine. It's con conceptualized in a certain way. And you know what the input is. You know what the output is, what it will deliver. And if you maintain it properly, it will always do exactly what it was built for in very high, highly regular fashion. And that's a machine, or we also call it a simple or logic system. And the human brain is not a logic system. It's a complex system. So it, it's to a certain extent unpredictable. I mean, some aspects are regular, like I have to breathe 20 times or 15 times a minute. 
my heart beats 70 times a minute at rest. I need to sleep six to eight hours each night. Uh, and so on. So humans, of course, have regular patterns, but but they're fundamentally, especially with regard to their language and also actions, unpredictable. So why is there this fear out there then? Is it because we're early in this and knowledge is low? Um, you sound very so, certain. So this, there's a, one I, I've given quite a lot of interviews about the book, but I haven't got this. So that's a very good one. So the, the term artificial intelligence was coined in the 50s by by um, mathematicians and, and, and uh, well, there were computer scientists at the time, but the predecessor of computer scientists who wanted to get funding for their research. They called it artificial intelligence because they thought that's a cool name, we will get a lot of funding. And that was true. Um, and, and the fear arose because um, there's a very strong cultural um, stance in, in, in the Anglo-Saxon world. So I'm German, yeah? So it's slightly different in, in German culture, but in the Anglo-Saxon world, the mind, and also the French world, by the way. So France and England together are what we as Germans think is the West and America. That's the West, right? Right. And and there's a very strong tradition of thinking that the mind is just a machine. Now, if you think that the mind is just a machine, well, then, of course, it must be possible over time to imitate what it does with another machine that we can build ourselves. And when computers came about, it was suddenly incredible how much these machines could do because unlike mechanical machines, which are always, even if a huge mechanical machine, like a very big printing press can print, you know, thousands of newspaper editions in a minute, this is still very limited, even if there are a lot of nuts and bolts in the machine. But when computers, um, especially those based on transistors were built, it was astonishing how many operations they could perform a second. And even now, I mean, they can, it's, the clock cycles are now incredibly high, so machines can compute so much. And in, in a way, it was like taking out gravity, you know, which it is because electrons, of course, are, only interact very, very little with gravity. So it was it was really, you know, such a revolution. And, and then people thought, OK, if we can build such powerful machines, then it's only a matter of time until, until we can imitate uh, the human brain, which is also a machine. So the human brain is not a machine. So what what is it exactly then? Ah, that's a very good question. So <laughs> to put it very simply, we really don't know. <laughs> so we know a lot about the anatomy of the human brain. We now know also quite a bit of physiology. We can even see parts of the human brain in action with functional MRI and other um, uh, devices that can give us images of the function of the brain. But all of this information we have about the brain is very coarse-grained, right? It's very superficial. But, but you have to think that it consists of 100 billion cells that's a hundred that's a thousand times a hundred million cells it's it's really a lot and and these cells um uh, the neurons um they they there's also glia but the active neurons that each contains hundreds of thousands of different molecules and then all these cells interact and we just don't know how it works right it's very very complicated but we don't know how it works and we and what's worse we can't make a mathematical model of it right so for example, while we can make a mathematical model um, of an electric circuit, uh, or um, of we can also model the explosion of a nuclear bomb, you know, um, also fusion bomb, we can we cannot um, have a mathematical model of what's going on there, and that's for fundamental reasons. So we know what the brain does because we can observe it, but we but we really have almost no idea how it works. 
Sounds like we've been underselling the brain for quite a long time then. If we've been reducing it kind of in our yes. thinking to just, yes. a, a, you know, more akin to a machine. It's not. Yes, right? that, 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 that arose, you know, René Descartes was a French philosopher who was the first to say that everything works mechanically in the human body, also the brain. And then 100 years later, his colleague Lametrie, another French philosopher, said, man is just a machine. His famous book, Man as a Machine. And, and then this was basically also picked up by the British. And there was a huge tradition arising to see a man in a mechanical way. And Newton once thought that by applying Newton's equations um, to, to everything, one could in the end describe all the mechanics and how they interact. And um, uh, um, German philosopher Immanuel Kant said that this is not possible, that you can't reduce animate nature, so organisms, living beings, to, to Newton's laws of nature. But it took another 80 or so years or 100 years after Kant wrote this until Boltzmann, a, a physicist, discovered statistical mechanics and thermodynamics. And then it became clear that, that uh, the laws um, of motion of Newton can't be applied to this world of many, many particles. So, But that it only works for a few bodies like in the solar system uh, where you can uh, use these laws really well to approximate how the celestial bodies move and so on, but but um, that we, when you have problems with many many small particles, you can only uh, obtain statistical inference about their behavior um, at a, at an aggregated level, but that you don't really know what's going on at the micro level. And and this this insight um, uh, changed totally physics, and the, and ultimately led physicists and the and the clever biologists to understand that living systems, because they consist of so many particles, can't be compared to, to simple systems which have only a few regular particles. If we think of um, consciousness and, and the way our brain works as an evolutionary process, and there's been a lot of evolution, I know that, billions of years, is it reasonable to hypothesize that other things can experience some sort of evolutionary process, but at a far higher rate with far more computational power available to it. In other words, is it natural for some kind of, you know, something like the brain to emerge from yes. a certain set of circumstances? Yeah. Yes. That's a very good question. So we, this is an argument of the proponents of AI is of course, they believe that, that you can emulate evolution and thereby kind of um, let intelligence emerge like it emerged uh, in natural evolution. So first of all, we have to, to acknowledge that um, there are not only intelligent humans, but that there's also animal intelligence, so that we have to speak of natural intelligence, which indeed emerges very early on. So relatively life forms that are relatively simple already have some kind of intelligence. So what is intelligence? It's the ability to solve a new problem for which the individual has no experience at all, spontaneously to the satisfaction of the individual. Without training or experience on this just it's it's about coping in a productive way with novelty that was intelligence is so it can also mean to find a new solution for an existing problem that has already a solution but basically it's this novelty and and this this emerges somehow by evolutionary pressure by billions of over billions of years by of course almost infinitely many factors that have interacted in this long period of time among the many many individuals uh, of the of the species that interacted in the ecosystems, 
we don't know how evolution works. We know that there must some be something with, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, env environmental pressure, which leads to selection and there are spontaneous mutations of the genome. And so as Darwin described it, somehow the species, ar species arise, but we don't know the details of this. And um, we, we, we don't know how um, life evolved from inanimate matter. We have no idea about this, even though there are theories that are not very good. And we don't have any idea of um, of how intelligence came about. So if we try to construct evolution in a laboratory or in a computer, we can't emulate the complexity of that system. If we could do it, then we could create intelligence. That's for sure. But the problem is that evolution is more complex than intelligence because it created intelligence. So it is so complex. We don't understand it. It's quite a miracle. And I think that's why we can't emulate it. And, and if we could, yes, then we could generate intelligence. But in the book, we argue, and I think that that's correct, that we don't know how to set up uh, an evolutionary environment that is uh, able to uh, generate intelligence. So if you can't do that, you're never going to get there, is what you're saying, yes. fundamentally. And the reason is that the mathematics we have, so everything that's also very important for the book, everything that runs in a computer is a mathematical model. And only a fraction of all mathematical models can run a computer because computers have limitations, which Alan Turing has proven very elegantly already in 1936. And um, also Alonso Church, that's the Church-Turing um, hypothesis, which, which has never been um, refuted. It is correct. And it shows uh, that, that the number of algorithms that are possible are, um, are many more than the number of algorithms that a computer can run. But any algorithm that a computer can run must be mathem of mathematical nature. And because that's the case, we are constrained to using mathematics to model complex systems. But we know since Boltzmann that in complex systems, we can only do very partial models. But intelligence is, of course, a holistic property of, of the system. So we are, and it, it itself is, is non-ergodic. So it's spontaneous. It creates novelties all the time. It is irregular, right? That's the, the miracle of intelligence is, is, is irregularity. But we know we can only make regular regular structures in computers. So with the human mind, you can't move through to the next step with certainty with a mathematical calculation. You just yes. never, you, you can't do that. But with AI, as we're talking about it, you can. You can work forward and see the next logical step, even if it's very complex, and you can see how that step was arrived at. Have I got that right? Well, you can you can create a regularity, but with today's um, so that was right for traditional mathematical models that are created as what we call explicit mathematics. That's when you write down an equation, okay? Like the fam famous second law um, by Newton, f equals m times a, which you learn at school. That's a regularity that that um, describes um, force as a relationship of mass and acceleration. You can you can write this down. And, and you can then calculate with it and you can ultimately use it to predict the movement of the earth around the sun and so on. And, and th this is a regularity that you can capture explicitly and that you can understand. But many things that are done today with Legendre mathematics, as I call it, this was the inventor who invented this type of mathematics uh, uh, around the turn of the 18th to the 19th century. That's what is being used on a more complex way in today's neural networks um, or artificial intelligence algorithms. This type of mathematics is implicit. So that means we don't write down an equation anymore, but we let the computer um, create an equation based on the data we give to the computer. 
And so therefore, these equations are now so long. I think Google's new deep new um, fundamental uh, foundational large language model has 450 billion parameters. So that means that it's an equation with with 450 billion terms. So uh, 450 million times thousand terms, right? So this is a huge equation. So when we put something in, we can't say exactly why it comes out. But what we know is that it's highly regular. So that you that the same input will lead to the same output, and that it it's highly dependent on the data and the whole parameterization of the of the um, algorithm that was used to obtain the equation. And so it is still a regular predictive algorithm, but it's then it's also very complicated. This may or may not be relevant, but um, and I don't know too much about it, but I've certainly sort of my ears prick up when I hear about it. Quantum computing oh. is that a gateway to really starting to see possibly an emergence of more human-like computing for one of it. Yeah, so, so first of all, every computation a quantum computer can do can also be done by a classical computer, just in right. some cases exponentially slower. So the quantum computer does not create a new class of algorithms that are computable. What it just could do, and it hasn't done it yet, is speed up some algorithms, only and only quite a few. So only a, a small proportion of algorithms are amenable to quantum computing. They must have certain properties um, that make that make it so that the um, uh, the special quality of quantum computers can be leveraged. The problem is so so if we would have quantum computers, it would change nothing in our ability to compute artificial intelligence. What it would do, it would speed up certain computations like um, num number factoring, for example. So we could uh, crack. Um, uh, uh, public-private code scheme for secure transmission of data uh, much e more easily and so on. So it, it, it would have some some stunning applications, but the problem is I think we will not witness um, uh, practical quantum computers that can beat classical computers in our lifetimes, and that's because quantum computers are so hard to build. And that has to do with the problem that while one normal bit can only be on and off, a quantum bit has an infinite number of states. And, and so what we have to do is to manipulate a machine where each uh, bit, they are called qubits, is continuous. And that makes that makes it very, very hard to properly control quantum computers. And some physicists argue that we will never really build them. I don't know this, but it certainly, even if we do, it will not change anything with regard to quant uh, uh, artificial intelligence. So we can relax about that. <laughs> totally. We yeah. can even relax about about the feasibility of quantum computers for quite a while because because you need a thousand qubits to do anything useful. Now we are you know at a few hundred qubits, but only for special problems, and and we are facing huge problems in making technical progress with quantum computers. Yeah, it was in the news a week or so ago that the and they're describing him here at the BBC AI Godfather Jeffrey Hinton warns of dangers as he quits. Google, and I'll just pull up the quote here yeah, and get please. you a co comment on this. Right now, they're not more intelligent than us, as far as I can tell, but I think they will soon be, he says. What do you think he's like saying there? So um, there, there are many, many computer scientists who believe that um, that computers, somehow uh, higher intelligence will emerge. And I think the reason why, and it's interesting that very few mathematicians and physicists has, say this, but very many computer scientists and philosophers. And so these are the groups who don't understand what is happening mathematically, right? And if, if you understand what's happening mathematically and what intelligence is, um, and understand that 
as we argue in the book, that it's a property of a complex system that those systems can't be modeled mathematically, and that therefore there's a there's a you know hard boundary or ceiling for what can be achieved. Then you're quite relaxed. I think those people they see the computational power, they believe the mind is a machine, and so they they conclude naively that, that sooner or later um, we will we will emulate what the mind does. And I think this is. Is, is really a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that the mind works and also the misunderstanding of the mathematics of, of AI. And, and they think that AI has, has opened up a new type of mathematics, but that's really not true. It's just applying a 200-year-old principle using very strong uh, computers to, to do astonishing things. And I don't want to, you know, diminish the incredible uh, engineering effort and success that is in something like ChatGPT. It's, it's a great achievement of technology. However, it has nothing to do with intelligence. And those saying this, if you ask them to define intelligence, they will probably say something like, eh, well, it's a computational property of the human brain. And, and then if, if you think that is true, then you must conclude that AI will be possible. But, but the premise is wrong. It is not a, a, a computational property of the human brain. I'm speaking with Jobs Langrieb, co-author of the book, Why Machines Will Never Rule the World, Artificial Intelligence Without Fear. Okay, so that explains that well. But you mentioned chat, GTP, I mentioned at the start. It seems like a lot of responses that people are reporting back, and I haven't talked to chat um, GPT yet, but they seem to be quite organic. In, in, so, yes. Yeah. So, I mean... Let's look at the at the positive side of ChatGPT. So ChatGPT is um, is is a sequence computation algorithm that takes a sequence A and computes based on the most likely sequence B. So it tries to find a prolongation of the sequence it, it reads, and and it is a conditional probability model. So it means it finds the the sequence B that has the highest likelihood given sequence A. And this it does it does really well, and because it was trained on billions and billions of texts, it is um, it is almost syntax error free. It has a very high quality syntactic quality, and it's also very it, and it's very good at completing sequences for common knowledge. Um, so these are its strengths. What are the weaknesses? First of all, it's all the time making up pseudo facts, which they call hallucinations, and these pseudo facts they come from. Uh, they arise from the problem that was trained to to try to always give an answer and to not say I don't know, and so it rather tries to give an answer or to um, instead of giving out the sequence I don't know and and this this makes it create a lot of a lot of wrong text. If you would parameterize it so that it would be try to be more truthful, it would say very very often I don't know, which which then people wouldn't like. So it that's was, interesting. That's interesting. Yes. And it was trained. So how was it trained? First of all, a foundational model was made that captures the distribution of symbols in language. Then it, then, uh, 100 or 200,000 or even more questions. Um, it was given hundreds of thousands of question answer pairs where the, where the question and the answer fit perfectly together. Like what's the recipe for tomato soup and, and others? Who was the most famous movie star of the 1950s and so on? And, and then with this, it got a basic training. Then the, the next training step, so and this training parameterized it already towards um, towards uh, giving answers or fulfilling tasks. And then it was there was another round of training where it was supposed to give answers on it on its own. And human raters rated the quality of the answers, I think, in six categories. 
So this is all. And then a reinforcement learning model was derived from the six categories. And then it was trained billions of times with these six quality categories. And which it then assigned it to, to itself because you can't never can produce enough training material using humans to do billions of runs. And this, and by doing this, it, it, it learns a very stereotypical behavior because humans, of course, have infinite, almost infinitely many ways of acknowledging the quality of, of um, an interlocutor's utterance. So what somebody says, you know, you have many ways of judging its quality, but the machine is only six levels. And so therefore it is quite stereotypical, but the quality, if you just use it once, the quality is astonishing. But if you use it a lot, you realize how many mistakes it makes, how blunt it is, how repetitive it is, how boring it really is. And that of course, it will not never create anything new in the way humans do. So it, it is, has nothing to do with intelligence. It's just a sequence computation algorithm. So the answer is like a, just a probability really of mm -hmm. every kind of response to a sort of question or comment like that, that it can draw on. So it fires the most likely probability that it can grab. Is that how not even, not even of an answer, but it's only for, for it, there is no question or task. There is just a sequence of symbols. And given that sequence of symbols, it just gives us another sequence and, and at the syllable level or few letter level, one is concatenated to the other, including spaces. So it just creates a long sequence. It doesn't know what it's doing at all. It's just a sequence which it comp computes. And this is the most probable it, it can come up with. How do they make it change? So how do they make it that if you ask the same question several times, it gives different answers? Probably either they have several instances of, of the model that are trained slightly differently so that there's some variation, or they change the input sequence a bit so that you so that you can get different answers. But if only one model would be used, it would always give the same answer to the same question because always the same sequence of symbols would obtain the highest probability score. That's all it does. So, okay, the fear then, and I think you've explained everything really well, so I, I'm not hung up on that one anymore, but the fear is that to many, it can simulate to a level of a kind of believability. So it's hard to know unless you really think about it or can find other information or catch it out. Oh, by the way, what would be a question that would catch up chat oh, GPT? For example, it's very easy. You take um, some, you take um, either, you know, um, not, not so known figure, like my grandfather was a philosopher. So you could ask it, who was Ludwig Dantgräber? And then it starts to turn out a lot of nonsense. And I mean, we get it right that he was a phenomenologist and maybe even that he worked with Sosa, but it will, it will turn out a lot of nonsense. Or you ask it, um, uh, for example, what was the relationship between Martin Heidegger and the French philosophers? And then it will also start as soon as it's a question that is a bit more difficult and out of the very, very, basic facts of life, it will start to, to create hallucinations. So you will immediately see that it's wrong. Or you give it a task for which it's unprepared. I mean, it's just, or if you even, whenever you conduct a dialogue with it, you will notice that it's a machine that is very error prone because it's it can't be trained for dialogues. That's very interesting. It can only be trained for one prompt and one answer, one task solution. It can never do dialogues because if you think of a dialogue, like this one, it has infinitely many combinations that are possible. And of course, we are a bit restricted because we are supposed to talk about the book, but but we could go off very easily and talk about other things. And 
And th this this is called combinatorial explosions. And there are, of course, more ways to, to conduct a conversation than there are particles in the observable universe. There are just in, almost infinitely many. And therefore, you can't train um, a dialogue. And so if you try to conduct a dialogue with the system, you will very soon notice that it's failing. So just the question I asked you before, it suddenly popped into my head. How would you catch it out? Yeah, AI probably couldn't do that, right? On the fly, you could. it could. You could. You could just ask something that you know is not. Uh, so, so you could take. No, no, but me thinking about. Well, I, I suppose the AI would have to ask it, wouldn't it? But just coming up with a sudden thought and then acting on it—that's AI can't do that, right? Yes, but you can catch it out by asking about what your father did in his life. Yeah, for example, or or and and then the 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 big problem is. Maybe it would say, I don't know. And then I don't know what your father's first name was, Peter Brennan. I don't know, Peter Brennan, it might say, but, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but it could also invent something about him, you know? So if you, if you log into it and ask about your father five or six times, you're certain to get some answers that are wrong, but where it tries to, to um, emulate something that sounds right and will grammatically be correct. Now, one important thing. You are asking about how to how this can be used to 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 create you know abuse or how this can be abused. So so you can use all this AI for, for abusive purposes really easily. So look at the deep fakes they're doing. Yeah. Right. So they are very convincing. So you can now you could have me speaking and uttering racist nonsense, and then yeah. I could be you know then I would have to prove that it was not me, but it was done by a machine. So or or somebody would have to prove it. So it's really hard to um uh, to detect this so the deep fakes are becoming better and better and very soon you can make movies consisting of deep fakes fakes you you need less human actors you can have you know like they already did it princess princess leia in the star wars episode was was created by a deep fake algorithm I mean, you could still see it but it was already quite good and this will continue so you the, the abuse even if it's not intelligence the abuse potential is huge and that's the following reason if you have just a hammer, you can you can use it to a hammer in a nail, but you can kill one person by 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 hitting his head with the hammer. But you can't kill thousands of people, right? One hammer is just one hammer. But the more powerful the technology gets, the more good and evil you can do with it. So so right now we are mostly using nuclear fission for for benign purposes because we use it to create energy. But but if you use just a thousandth of the of the material that was so far burned up. Um, to uh, for nuclear fission, you could destroy the entire life on on this planet. So so the more powerful the technology is, the the the, the bigger it's is is it is its abuse potential. And so AI has it because it's so powerful. It has a very high abuse potential. So the threat is not you know consciousness emerges into an AI system and it decides to do things for itself, maybe clean up the world or something and get rid of the problematic species that, that might be causing problems. It is the nefarious use of technology that can simulate reality to people like deep fakes. And I mentioned also those perfect people that were created, well, said by AI. I looked at them. I've done a lot of um, time in graphics and video production over the years. They were good. Yes. They were very good. Yes. And, so, and they so kind of were the perfect people. No one without any knowledge of this would realize that. That's the real danger, isn't it? Yes. So that's one of the dangers. There are many, many others. So think of the Chinese social credit system, right? Which is a which is a terrible system to tyrannize individuals in a mass society, right? Mm. And mm. and um, we even see beginnings of this in in the West now. Yeah, with the with the COVID restrictions, you saw this especially 
uh, well, everywhere in the West you saw, but your country was one of the worst in this as well. And and if you if That's you think right. of this, if you think of this and and think how you can use AI in this context, you know, facial recognition, recognition. If you don't have the face, you can now. I, I can identify a person almost perfectly by the way the person walks. Um, it, it, the voice can be detected. So you can really identify people extremely well. You can uh, influence their perception by showing them certain material and, and uh, withholding other material from people, withholding information. So you can use it as a propaganda, um, you know, adjuvants. It's not, it's not, it will not create the propaganda itself, but you can make propaganda more efficient. Um, so there are many ways you can set up. If you think of digital currencies, you can use it in a digital currency setting um, to to guide how people can use their money and so on and so on. So there are many many ways that it can be used for abuse of power and and of, or ruling people, which are quite threatening. So it is um, uh, uh, even if it can't think by itself, it, it can make um, rulers much more powerful than we actually want it would like them to be. How to let this then all sort of roll out into the future, given to what you've just said then and everything else that's happening, is there, in your mind, from what you see, adequate thinking being done about this and the anticipation of where it could be? I don't know. So, what sort of time span should we be thinking here? This is so, such a cool question. So because, you know, there is such a nice hysteria about that AI can gain consciousness, that it almost diverts uh, uh, the, uh, the the from the view of the realistic view of AI that it's actually not dangerous by itself but by the way it's being used so there's not there's much too much pseudoscience dealing with AI becoming intelligent and how this dangerous it is they call it ethics of AI it's a complete nonsense discipline you know so thousands of philosophers and psychologists are now quote unquote thinking about this but it's really nonsense it's it's almost like the late 15th or 16th century scholastics that dealt with how many angels fit on the tip of a needle and all this nonsense, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a real nonsense discipline. And it basically avoids or prevents us or all these people from thinking about the real abuse potential. And sometimes I think this is also in the interest of those who, who make this gigantic AI, because of course now, you know, one training run, of ChatGPT costs more a few costs a few billion dollar one a few million dollar so the the entire each generation of GPT GPT which is a large language model behind ChatGPT costs a few billion so 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 only huge corporations can make this and only they can basically then use this technology in the way they want and 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 uh, and and abuse it and so we were asking about the time scale I think so for example if the West would introduce a digital um digital central bank currency in 2024-25 that would be the very moment also that this type of ai could already be used uh, uh for mass surveillance and mass you know um uh, um uh, control yeah so control it, 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 it's, it's imminent you know oh dear uh and so what you're saying is this provides an incredible tool to concentrate power Yes. In a very small and small number of hands, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And oh, this dear. is, by the way, the overall problem of the West, right? So the West, we had such a society in the Middle Ages where one, one per mil, only a tenth of a percent, one per mil of the population, the European nobility, possessed everything, right? Almost all the land. 
and 99.9% possessed nothing. And those, this one per mil decided also almost everything. And, but because technology was so, there was almost no technology, it was very hard to control people, right? And in the end, there was still a lot of freedom in society because without technology, how do you control people? You know, you, you need ideology. There was a Catholic church and so on, but basically it was still hard. Um, um, and, and then, you know, in 1776, uh, the Americans liberated themselves from this. And then they, we had the, 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 the age of the bourgeoisie industrial capitalism and so on. But now we have again such a concentration of ownership in a few hands. And, and, and we, we still have the, the rule of law and the democratic participation apparatus standing there, but it's working less and less well because of this, because so much power is now in, in so, in so, uh, so few hands. And they can, of course, abuse this power with technology and i'm certain they will it has always been like this and then the level of control they can have because the technology is so much better now than 900 years ago or 700 years ago they can also you know use much more of this power okay um just a couple more questions here as you're talking yes. i was thinking uh, and i know about you know this whole neural link thing and um i think I, elon uh, musk and others are engaged in that what happens when you get a sort of a meeting of the human brain and the way it works plugged in to the power of AI working together. So, so the whole Neuralink story is a hoax. Oh, really? So, <laughs> yes. So, so, so. Oh, that's reassuring. I, I, yeah. I used to do, you know, I was a neurobiologist for a couple of years before I um, left academia and did neurobiological research at the Max Planck Institute. And, and I, I've never come totally out of touch with it, so I, I still know how it works. And if you look at this textbook here, yeah, it here. This is the leading textbook in in neuroscience. It's called Principles of Neuroscience. Look, it's so thick. Yeah, it's and a big it one. All, yeah, it's fat. Yeah, yeah, and it has and it has almost no mathematical equation in it. So, so because that's the case, because it's a descriptive science. Um, with with you know models made drawn as pictures and so on, there's no way how we can link the brain in in its full glory to a computer. Yes, we have some we have cochlear implant implant implants and some other technologies that where machines interact with the brain and that's a miracle. And maybe at some some point in a few hundred years we'll, we'll have an artificial retina so that we can uh, make the the blind see again and so on. So there there will be a lot of, a lot of progress. But but ultimately we can't connect um, a microprocessor to the way we think, and and this is for the we also have a chapter about this in the book. So cyborgization in the true sense of direct links of computers with with our with our thinking and consciousness is impossible technically. And Musk has totally failed with his latest brain chips. He, all the most of the monkeys where he put them in died from it. So it's complete. It's really charlatan, charlatan um, technology. And now he's back to deep brain simulation, which is a technology that has been around for 30 to 40 years for diseases like Parkinson and, and other motor neuron diseases. So, uh, so diseases of the motoric system. So this is, this is now he has recognized himself that it, it was a waste of money and an empty promise. So we don't have to be afraid of this at all. Well, that's um, good to hear as well, because you don't want someone who can instantly think of everything that's ever happened in one moment yes. standing in front of you in a conversation, because that's not going to work. Yes, you're <laughs> <Exactly>. right. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be hopelessly outgunned. Well, that's uh, really interesting. So it boils down to two ways of seeing it. There's the computational people who see the human brain as essentially a biological computer working yes. on mathematics, and yes. those like yourself who who see it as 
way different from that. It it really it it might look like that sometimes, but there's no no overlap or commonality really in those two systems at all. So you're saying that consciousness, as we know it in humans, which could go wrong and decide, like I say, to wipe out the species because it doesn't like us, that's not going to happen, right? Yes. And and very importantly, I don't, then people say, oh, you're a mysticist, you don't believe in the laws of nature, go back to your middle ages. No, I think the, the human brain and the human body is made of matter, ultimately of atoms, and they interact according to the four laws um, of physics, the four fundamental interactions, the weak force, the strong force, the gravitational force, and electromagnetism. The most relevant one in the human body is, of course, electromagnetism, which, which, which mediates what happens between the molecules that make up our brain. All of this is also causal, I think, you know, so that there's a causal chain happening there, but there are just too many parameters for us to understand it. So I'm a materialist. With, as a scientist, I'm a materialist right. and believe that everything is matter and caused by matter, but we don't understand how it happens. That's the point. So I'm not a mysticist. I just say we can't model it, but it's certainly causal. Just, yeah, but it's, just, not zero, it's not zeros and ones necessarily. Um, exactly. Exa yeah. Well, you know, ultimately you could you could argue that that um, that electricity there is electric currents making all of this because it's electromagnetism, and and there are you could in a way you can imagine to represent as zeros and ones, but then there are just too many, and we don't know how to do it, and we will never know. That's the point. You know, you can even imagine it in a digital way. But in a far too complex way to 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 actually write it down or let the computer write it down. Wow! So the the old human brain, and I guess anything with a brain, but particularly ours, we don't know about whales yet. Kind of a miracle that it's got to what it is, really, isn't it? When you really think about it, and what it can do, <laughs> and how it works, and 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 just the fact that we can think. Yeah, is... I, I you know when you look at biomolecules. Even RNA, which is supposed to be the first biomolecule that arose, we don't know at all how it happened. But even that's a total miracle. Yeah. So even if you look at, at at the at the at the basic components like amino acids and short amino acid chains, uh, peptides they're called, and all of this, are, I mean, it's already a miracle in, in itself. And then if you look at a cell, just one single cell, and you observe how it how it doubles, how it divides under the microscope and two cells arise and all of this. I've seen this in the microscope. It's just so, such a miracle. We we have really only very, very high level idea of what's going on there. And, and um, you know, you can cope with it the way you want. I'm Christian, others may be Buddhists, but but certainly um, uh, faith is a better way to to admiring and, and acknowledging this miracle than trying to, like Descartes, say it's all mechanics. That's interesting you say that. Um, I'm noticing more and more scientists are actually of that view. I'm picking up that it's kind of the only way to explain things, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's like this. There are there are three types of knowledge. Max Schiller says one is the positive knowledge. That's that that's with what what has ultimately led us to building computers and nuclear. Uh, bombs and and nuclear power plants. That's positivism, positive knowledge of the world. Then we have then we have um, uh, kind of philosophical knowledge of the world, um, which is about um, you know how do you conduct the conversation, um, how how do you engage with other people, um, what are the rules that hold society together. And then there's the third type of knowledge, which which Sheila calls revel re revelation knowledge, which is about religion. And I think. I think that these three types of knowledge stand one beside the other and don't have to necessarily be compatible, but that you can in one person have 
you know, a portion of all three and, and live very well with it. And I think that the idea to, to bring everything into one framework, that's a Greek idea, right? The Hellenistic idea that the Catholic Church also pursued. Thomas of Aquinas, you tried to do this. I think that we don't have to do this. We can just live with the fact that we cannot unite our positive knowledge and our theological knowledge. They just are side by side. It's been really interesting chatting with you. Thanks for making some time. I'm sure our listeners found that really interesting and reassuring, I'd have to say, Very <laughs> ultimately. Good. So uh, thank you so much, Jobs, for um, joining us all the way from uh, USA. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.